So we are still in Philippians. We are going to be taking a look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 to 11. I will have the verses up on the screen for you, but I would encourage you to open your Bibles to this passage and to read from your Bible. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So our first point today, we're going to be taking directly from verse 9. Our first point is, Christ is highly exalted above all by God the Father. It's God the Father who exalts Christ. So according to the passage, God has highly exalted Christ and has given him the name above every name. So our topic this morning is the exaltation of Christ. Verse 9 sets the scene of the exaltation for us. But before we dive into the exaltation of Christ, some of you are probably sitting here going, that's a pretty big word, exaltation. What does that even mean? Don't worry, I'm going to explain for you what it means. Exaltation, biblically speaking, is defined as raising someone to the most majestic or highest of heights, the highest of honors. You were being exalted, catapulted in status and elevation. But we need to be careful not to confuse exaltation with promotion. Christ isn't being promoted. He's being exalted. There's a reverence to it. So there are two questions that we need to ask ourselves about the exaltation. The first is, why is Christ highly exalted? Why is he worthy of being exalted? Why does God exalt him? The second question is, what is the exaltation of Christ? What does it entail? What does it include? Is it just a phrase that we say that Christ is exalted, or is there more to it? Here's a helpful illustration. Perhaps you recognize it from when Pastor Nate used it. We have the pre-incarnate glory, humiliation, the cross, and then the exaltation. In order to understand the exaltation, though, We have to understand Christ's humiliation. So we're going to do a little recap of the humiliation of Christ. So the therefore in verse 9 actually connects us back to the preceding verses that talk about the humiliation of Christ. Christ humbling himself. He takes the form of a servant. He leaves glory to come here and takes the form of a servant. And we see him take on the likeness of man, the form of a man. He takes on human flesh. Think of how humiliating that is, given that 
we as humans are sinful and rebellious. And then, to complete his humiliation, he goes to the cross and is obedient to death. What a Savior that we serve. What a Savior who has saved us, that he came as a baby in a manger, taking on human flesh, that he humbled himself to come and save us. You see, this is why he is exalted, because he came and was humbled. He was humiliated. So, the exaltation has four stages to it. To understand the exaltation of Christ, we need to look at each stage. The first stage of the exaltation begins with the resurrection. What a great start to his exaltation. You see, the resurrection is a sign of Christ's victory over sin and death. Oh, death, where is your sting? We sing. See, Christ came and did precisely what he was called to do. He came to seek and save sinners. He came in the flesh to live the life that we could never live. He fulfilled the law, as we know Israel failed to keep. Christ fulfilled the law. And then he went to the cross to take our sin and our punishment. And you know what we get in return? The free gift of salvation, the free gift of grace. He gives us his righteousness. So that way we can stand before God as though we have never sinned. This is the beginning of his exaltation. His resurrection is what reconciles us as sinners to God the Father. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 4, For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he was buried, that he was raised, and on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Christ is the Messiah that was prophesied about in the Old Testament. He fulfilled Scripture. The resurrection is the beginning of his exaltation, his glorious victory over sin and death. The exaltation continues with stage two, his ascension. The ascension here refers to Christ ascending into heaven 40 days after the resurrection. So just imagine yourself as one of the disciples real quick. You lost your Messiah. He died on a cross. You're like, you don't know what to do anymore. You thought he was going to save Israel. Then he raises from the dead, appears to you, is with you for 40 days, and then he ascends to heaven. They get to witness that. That's a lot of up and down roller coaster moments for the disciples, if you think about it. From absolute despair to seeing their risen Savior with their own eyes, and then to see him ascend into heaven. The book of Acts records this event, this event for us in Acts 1, verses 9 to 11. 
Jesus had just got done speaking. And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So why is the ascension part of his exaltation? Well, he has to rise. He has to return to his place of glory with the Father. Jesus himself states that it is better that he go and send the Helper, which is the Holy Spirit. So Christ ascended for the glory that he had before he descended. Remember, before he descended in his humiliation, he was with God the Father in glory. So he is ascending again and returning to that glory. It is a fulfillment of the high priestly prayer in John 17. Christ also ascended in order for the Holy Spirit to come and dwell in us. As I mentioned earlier, it was better for Christ to leave and to send his Spirit for us as Christians. And then Christ ascended in order to fulfill the next stage of his exaltation. His intercession on our behalf by sitting at the right hand of God. Sitting at the right hand of God is a sign of his glory and his dominion. It means his rule and reign. Christ being able to sit at the right hand of the Father shows that his rule and reign, his dominion, is universal. There is nothing that escapes it. He has all dominion over earth, under the earth, and in heaven. Christ is the Lord. His intercession for us comes on behalf of the new covenant, which is better than the old covenant. The old covenant which Israel had to keep, follow all these laws in order to maintain their righteous standing before God, which Israel failed to do over and over again, and which we fail to do. But under the new covenant, Christ has fulfilled the law for us. And he gives us his righteousness. And we confess him as Lord and repent of our sin. Hebrews 7, verse 23 to 25 states of Jesus, this is why he is, um, why the intercession is part of his exaltation. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make an intercession for them. Christ is exalted to be our intercessor, to intercede for us. And since, unlike the priests of Israel, he is eternal, this covenant is eternal. His intercession for us is eternal. His intercession includes being our Lord and Savior who grants the forgiveness and repentance of sin. 
That is part of his job as an intercessor. That is found in Acts 5, verse 31. And then because he is interceding for us, nothing we can do can separate us from his love. No one can condemn you because Christ is interceding for you. That's amazing. So that means no matter what court you're in, whoever is condemning you in bringing to light your sin, Christ has bought and purchased you with his blood and he is interceding for you. You are his. Nothing can separate you from Christ. That's good news. That's wonderful news. Romans 8.34 brings this point home. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Nothing can separate us from Christ. His exaltation is magnified with his intercession for us. It's one of his stages. The last stage of his exaltation, which has yet to happen, but we who are in Christ will get to see one day, is his coming to judge on the last day. This is when Christ is going to return in full glory and splendor and majesty. He comes and he destroys Satan, sin, and death forever. They are no more. Can you just imagine that when the heavens open up and our Savior comes again in glory and power? What a sight that will be to behold. Jesus himself says in Matthew 16, verse 27, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what they have done. And later in Revelation 22, verse 12, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. Christian, take heart. Christ is coming soon. I know this world seems to get darker and more crazy each year, but we have an everlasting hope. Our hope is in Christ. We need to keep our gaze fixed upon him. He's coming again. We need to take heart and remember that. So his exaltation will finally be complete when he comes again to judge and then he will rule with power, majesty, and glory on the new heaven and the new earth. What a day that will be. So these four stages here help us to answer this question, what is the exaltation of Christ? This leads us into our second point of the passage. So now that Christ is, is is exalted and he's interceding for us, what are the results of that? Well, one, all will confess Christ 
is Lord and will bow to him. So this is drawing from verses 10 to 11. So all will confess Christ as Lord. We need to talk about how the name of Jesus is the name that is above every name. That is mentioned in verse 9, but it ties into this point that all will confess Christ as Lord. The reason why all will confess Christ as Lord is because his name is above all names. And this is because the name Jesus actually means Yahweh saves. The Lord saves. You see, Christ is the one true God that was present in the Old Testament. When God says to Moses, I am, which is Yahweh, Jesus is the I am. This is why all will confess him as Lord, because he is the one true God. So since he has descended and took on flesh and is now exalted in his exaltation, his exaltation has two results. The two results are, The first one is that every knee is going to bow. And then the second result is every tongue will confess him as Lord. We need to pause here for a second because sometimes people try to take exceptions with the word all or every. Oh, it doesn't really include everything. It doesn't really include all. No, this means every single person will one day bend the knee to Christ. Every single person will eventually agree that Christ is Lord. This includes heaven under the earth and the earth. This shows us that his exaltation is universal. His exaltation just isn't in heaven where he's interceding for us. It's here and now too. Because every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Bowing the knee to Christ and confessing him as Lord also includes unbelievers. So you may reject Christ in this life now, but you will one day confess him as Lord. Because when you stand there and he's in the judgment seat, If you are not found within him, with him, you will be judged for your sins. And with him standing there, you will recognize that he is the Lord, that he is the maker of heaven and earth. You cannot deny that. You will have to confess that he's Lord. And I would hope that on that day, you would regret that you rejected Christ. The Bible tells us that there's two kinds of people in hell. There are those that are weeping and those that are gnashing. Those that are weeping are weeping because they recognize the folly of their ways when they were alive. Those that are gnashing just continue to burn with their hatred towards God. To further expand upon this point, of every knee bowing and tongue confessing Christ as Lord, we're going to look at two passages real quickly. 
Um, but I do want to say that this first passage we look at, coming from Isaiah 45, verse 23, Paul is actually quoting it here in Philippians. Paul is drawing his, his language from here. So Isaiah 45, verse 23 states, To me, Yahweh, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Similar language that Paul is using here. This is, he's doing this to help connect the Philippians and their understanding that Christ is the one true God. That he is Yahweh. And then to better understand why all will bow and confess, we're going to look at Ephesians 1, verses 20 to 23. When he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also the one to come, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. The reason why we will all bow is because Christ is the one true God and he's been given universal dominion over everything. All things are under his feet. Now a question that I have for you. Have you confessed Christ as Lord? Have you repented and turned from your sin? You should be thinking on that if you have not. We're going to turn now to our last point for today. That the exaltation glorifies God the Father. That the glory Christ gets in his exaltation is not just for himself, but it glorifies God the Father. This is the last half of verse 11. To the glory of God the Father. The exaltation of Christ ultimately glorifies the Father in its final purpose or end result. This exaltation of Christ showcases his dominion. So the recognition of Christ as Lord culminates in the display of of God's glory. That because Christ universally rules and that all will eventually bow to him and confess him brings glory to God the Father. The universal display then shows God's glory and makes his name known among all peoples, all nations, all tribes and tongues. Christ's exaltation also glorifies God the Father in the fact that in order to see God's glory, we must look to Christ. We must turn our gaze to him. When we behold Christ, when we behold what he has done for us, we are bringing God glory. When we study what Christ has done in Scripture, when we see that Christ has been exalted, that he is is exalted high and above, and we believe that, and we believe in what he has done, we bring God glory. So the exaltation 
ultimately leads to the Father's glory. This is actually a fulfillment of the priestly prayer in John 17. I mentioned that earlier this morning. So in the priestly prayer, Christ is praying to God the Father, and he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Christ's exaltation glorifies God the Father. Christians, in order to see the glory of God, we must behold the face of Christ. So I ask you again, have you confessed Christ as Lord? Have you turned from your sin? There's no better day to do this. It's New Year's, a fresh start. And then lastly, the exaltation of Christ glorifies God by our submission to Christ as the highly exalted one. You see, Christian, when we submit to Christ as Lord by confession of our belief in him and repentance of our sin, we bring God glory. Have you confessed Christ as Lord? Have you submitted your life to him? Do you believe what he did happened on the cross actually happened? Today is New Year's Day. It's a great day for fresh starts. Some of you probably have New Year's resolutions. Your number one resolution should be to live for Christ in all that you do. And if you don't know Christ, I plead with you, come to him. The thing about Christ, he doesn't turn sinners away. No matter how bad your sin is, no matter what you've done, nothing can turn you from Christ. Repent of your sin and turn to him and rest in what he has done. When you do that, your life will change. A resolution will only get you so far, but you need Christ to have eternal life and to enjoy him forever. Would you bow your heads with me? Dear Holy Father, we just thank you once again for this time to hear your word proclaimed, Lord. Lord, may your word go forth. May it change people's lives. May they want to grow to know you more this year. Lord, help us to keep our number one resolution to be living for you. And living for you, Lord, looks like serving you, submitting to you, submitting to your word. God, you are glorious and magnificent. You are the highly exalted one who is interceding on our behalf. Lord, we are so 
grateful. We thank you for what you have done on the cross. I ask that you would be with everyone here, that those that are still traveling would be safe. We pray these things in your name. Amen.